Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Federal Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc is being challenged for saying publicly the reason Canada doesn't have vaccine manufacturing capacity it requires is that major pharmaceutical companies closed down such capacity during the Harper government years. Paul Lucas is the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. For 16 years he was there, and that was during the years that Mr. LeBlanc was talking about. Uh, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, one of the uh, pharmaceutical giants, Mr. Lucas, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. There's a lot that we need to cover in the time that we have, but may I just start with this question? There's a lot of debate about the efficacy, about how sure we can be or how confident we can be that when vaccines are eventually approved, that they will be safe to take. What do you think? Well, it's good to be with you, Roy. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, the safety of these vaccines, um, you know, no one can ever guarantee that they're going to be safe, but I think people can be assured that you know, they've gone through extensive um, clinical trials. Uh, those trials are reviewed by experts in the field, uh, not just company uh, experts, but external experts as well. So they go through a very rigorous process, and uh, no shortcuts have been taken. In fact, um, the industry is very sensitive to the fact that uh, they need to do everything possible to make sure that these vaccines are as safe as possible. So I think people can feel pretty confident. Okay, well, I'll ask you in a little while about the process that Health Canada employs, but let me get to the well, the headline point here that's been talked about across the country. What is it that the Federal Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, said specifically in recent days that has you as the former 16-year president and CEO of GSK replying to the minister that his statements are blatantly false? <laughs> well... Let me let me assure you that I no longer work for the industry, so I'm an independent citizen. But I was watching the news last week, and I saw him on a on a news uh, cast where he basically stated that uh, Canada no longer has any uh, vaccine manufacturing capability because uh, they were closed during the Harper years, and that kind of got my back up um, and and realized that you know that's. That's really spreading some pretty false information. Um, Glaxo actually has a, a flu vaccine manufacturing facility in Quebec City. Uh, it's been there for a number of years. It manufactured the H1N1 uh, pandemic vaccine, and it and it's still manufacturing flu vaccine on an annual basis in Canada. And uh, Sanofi, uh, another pharmaceutical company based in Toronto. Uh, manufactures a number of their vaccines in Canada as well. So not actually true that there's no vaccine capability in this country. So is it really the uh, technology that we would require to manufacture what is needed now in 2020 that may not be there and may not be there because, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I know I'm not, uh, but it's not there because government hasn't made it particularly attractive for pharmaceutical companies to invest. Yeah, I think that I think that captures it well. Um, clearly, uh, we don't have the technology of the messenger RNA type vaccines in Canada. Uh, it takes some pretty significant uh, volume capability and bioreactors to make those products, and we just don't have it here in Canada. 
And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why don't we have that capability? And uh, I think it's, it's clear to me anyway that uh, the main reason is that we really didn't have the vision and the planning to make sure that we could manufacture and develop our own vaccines here in Canada. We've done it before. We did it in H1N1, but we didn't do it this time around. You know, the governments didn't look strategically at what technologies were developing in the vaccine field, knowing that we were going to be faced with another pandemic. Uh, The last one was 2009, so typically they come every 10 years, so we were due. Um, but we weren't ready, and we didn't develop the technology necessary to make sure we had our own domestic supply. In uh, in 2009, your company at the time, you were the CEO, president and CEO at the time, uh, you, de- you developed, and I'm looking at your, uh, your, your, your submission here, your story, COVID vaccines for Canada, a sad story. You developed millions of doses, did you not, in 2009? Yeah, that, that's actually an interesting story, an example of uh, how Canada should plan to deal with pandemics in terms of having a domestic supply of vaccine. So if, I, if you've got a minute, I'll, I'll explain that. Sure, please. Um, so Glaxo uh, had the contract through its Quebec City uh, facility to manufacture a pandemic vaccine when it arrived. So nobody knew what it was going to look like in 2009. Um, but we had the contract that when it arrived, we would manufacture that vaccine. And you can't just have a plant sitting around waiting to manufacture a vaccine that you can't describe. So the government of the day was, was, was quite strategic in that they actually paid us a pandemic readiness fee to make sure that we kept that plant in good shape and ready to respond when a pandemic hit. They also guaranteed that facility a certain amount of the annual flu vaccine manufacturing. So, again, it would be a viable facility on an ongoing basis. So that worked beautifully. When the pandemic hit, we were able to uh, produce what was H1N1, the swine flu vaccine. And uh, we were able to do that in a few short months. In fact, that hit Canada in the spring of 2009. And by this time of the year of 2009, we had vaccinated 40% of the Canadian population uh, with that vaccine, which was the highest rate of vaccina- uh, vaccination in H1N1 in the world at the time. So that was a terrific example of how to prepare for these things. And as I say, if, if we had done the proper planning this time around, and I guess what, what is really disappointing is that we came out of the H1N1 pandemic Everyone said to themselves, look, we have to document the learnings from this. We have to make sure that next time there's a pandemic, we do have domestic manufacturing, and we have actually more than one supplier, because Glaxo was the only supplier at the time. So those were, that was a significant learning, but here we are 10 years later, and we didn't do that planning. Oh, we didn't. And, and Mr. Lucas, you say that Canada is lagging behind the rest of the world in developing and rolling out this COVID vaccine, and that we're down the list of countries to receive supplies of the vaccine. So would you speak to that? And do you have an idea? Is there something that you can share with us that tells you when a majority of whatever that means, what, whenever, when a majority of Canadians will have access to the vaccine? Well, you know, I think this is a really important uh, question. Um, you know, why don't we have more vaccines coming earlier, basically? 
And um, it's important because Canadians are dying right now, and we we lose approximately 100 people a day in this country. And so for every every week, every month, more people die. And the sooner we have a vaccine, the sooner we can start to see that start to decline. So we're losing 2,500, 3,000 people a month. The Prime Minister has said that, you know, it doesn't really matter when we start, it really matters when we finish. Well, to me, that's... that's <laughs> not a good approach. You know, we need to get started as early as possible. We should have been in a position where we could start earlier with a lot more doses. You know, we're going to have 6 million doses by the end of March. That's, uh, we, can ma- we can vaccinate 3 million people by that point. The U.S. is going to have vaccinated, vaccinated, if things go according to plan, millions of people by the end of December of this year. So that's a that's a big difference, and we're seeing other countries around the world who actually aren't Western-type countries actually in a position where they're going to have significant amounts of vaccine uh, before us. So it, it really is a, a problem for us, and uh, it's something we should have and could have avoided. And unfortunately, I say, you know, they, the, the chickens have come home to roost. We're paying for the mistakes of the past. Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, you write that liberal governments of Pierre Trudeau, Jean Chrétien, and Justin Trudeau, quote, have created an environment which has discouraged innovative pharmaceutical investment in research, development, and manufacturing in Canada. They have consistently put the Canadian CEOs of global companies in a weak position to attract investment to Canada from their global corporations. Can you explain that, please? Sure. Um, I, along with a number of my colleagues in the industry over the years, and I worked at this for oh, 25 or 30 years uh, in different roles in the industry, trying to attract more investment to Canada, uh, R&D, clinical trials, manufacturing, and so on. But uh, unfortunately, the environment here is not a very friendly one. Uh, and it all started with Pierre Trudeau's government in '68 when he eliminated patent protection for pharmaceuticals. And you know, we had a fairly robust industry back then, a uh, number of research centers in, from different companies, but they all closed pretty well immediately. And uh, so we found ourselves having to battle over the years trying to improve the environment. And the Mulroney government and the Harper government improved this patent situation in Canada. But we never really got to the point where we were globally competitive, so it, it was always difficult to attract that investment. I mean, unfortunately, even today, uh, with, with COVID, the Liberal government is implementing a new pricing regime in Canada, effective January 1st, which is intended to drive prices down in Canada. Um, which is going to put Canada on a bit of a pricing island around the world, and, and really... Uh, potentially sacrifice our ability to to launch new products in Canada. So this has been an ongoing issue in this country for a long time, despite the fact that the industry has reached out many times to the federal government and tried to work with them to create a much more favorable environment. Uh, In fact, back when Mulroney improved the patent laws, the industry actually, in, in just a few short years, increased its investment in R&D in Canada from $100 million a year to a $1 billion a year. So, so good pharmaceutical policy actually makes a difference and allows the CEOs here to start to attract some investment. But it is not a friendly environment here, and that is one of the big reasons why we don't have a COVID vaccine today. 
Um, and in fact, you know, it, when you even look at the fact that we didn't do any clinical trials for any of these vaccines in Canada, the companies didn't do anything here. And you have to ask the question, why is that? This is a this is a modern healthcare system in the Western world, yet not one vaccine was tested in Canada. Yeah. You write also that Health Canada is one of the slowest jurisdictions to um, endorse or support or certify a vaccine. We have about 90 seconds. I want to get at this with you. In your piece, you write about the pandemic management failures of the Trudeau government. So let me ask you about that. Um, we've talked on this program about the disbanding of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, a major failing which may well have caused Canada and the world to be unaware of the fact that a significant viral outbreak had begun in Wuhan, China about a year ago. That story is starting to become more public. And there are other management uh, failings, are there not? The PPE stockpiles were allowed to disappear with massive quantities destroyed because of the best before date. And 16 tons of PPE airlifted to China in January when it was needed in Canada. Can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, I I have difficulty understanding uh, why on those very basic elements, um, you, you know, this government actually didn't follow through on on some of the strengths of the country. So so the early warning system, it was instrumental in warning us about swine flu back in 2009. I remember getting a phone call from the head of public health in Canada saying, uh, swine flu has crossed the border from Mexico. We need we need to be ready. So that that early warning system was critical. It's it got dismantled last year by the federal government. Now they're now they realize you know the the fact that they made a mistake and they're trying to build it back up again. But you know PPEs that was another learning out of the uh, out of the H1N1 pandemic that we should and must have an ongoing stockpile of PPEs, ventilators, and so on. Well, you know we we didn't manage that. Uh, the government didn't manage that stockpile. Uh, they didn't rotate the stock. Uh, it went out of date and they threw it away last year. And so. Uh, when it when it came time to order more, of course, they realized that we have no domestic capability to to manufacture the, that PPE. Most of it had been outsourced to other countries, such as China. So um, you know we were in a very difficult spot on all of those fronts. Uh, you know, and the testing situation as well is is something that we need to you know check ourselves on. Uh, you know, we should have the rapid tests more available across Canada. Uh, other countries do. They're very useful in certain situations. They're not as accurate as the PCR test, but we should have those available to us. Yeah. I have uh, literally 30 seconds left. What's yeah. the takeaway, Mr. Lucas? Well, I think the takeaway is that we need to really sit down with the pharmaceutical industry in this country and find a way to make sure that we're not in this situation again. And when the next pandemic hits, you know, we're going to have domestic capability to build the vaccine that's going to work for that one. I'm receiving uh, much correspondence about the interview that we aired with Mr. Paul Lucas, president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline for 16 years. He's not now, but he was for 16 years. And during the years that uh, Dominic LeBlanc says um, pharmaceutical companies were closing down their vaccine development because of the Harper government. How can you still complain about Stephen Harper almost six years after you got into power? Please, come on. You know, I might as well blame John Diefenbaker, 
I don't know. So these two emails just arrived back to back. I'm just reading them to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Thanks for the enlightening show. Thank you. Writes Maureen. I love it. And Pamela writes, Roy, your guests have been excellent. Thanks, Pam. Great show as always. Thank you so much. Yeah, you don't have to send me emails and tell me I'm a jerk every day. It's just, you know, say something nice. That's that's all right, too. I do get some very, very interesting emails, and the word combinations are fascinating. Roy at RoyGreenShow.com is the email address. I respond to as many as I can. The fiscal update that we had earlier this week, what does it really mean? How large is the financial hole in which Canada finds itself? How much larger will it likely become? We spoke at the top of the hour with Goldie Hyder, the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. And uh, as Mr. Hyder said, we the government has to get at uh, the issues that matter, and that is um, plans, and we just can't have this kind of debt forever. Uh, how will the international financial community assess Canada's fiscal position? Dr. Eric Cam joins us, uh, professor of economics at Ryerson University. We're always glad to have uh, Professor Cam join us. He's a recent addition to this program's contributor list, and we're not going to let you go, Professor. We enjoy the contributions. And I love it myself. And I have to tell you, why would you stop at Stephen Harper? I really go back to Plato and Aristotle. They bungled <laughs> it up from the start. <laughs> Yeah, or as somebody said, Plato and Socrates. I was that was that's something I'll never forget from high school. Plato one of my Socrates. one of my buddies got up and he had no idea what he was talking about. Dad hadn't done his work, and he said, "Well, as far as Plato and Socrates are concerned, I said, why do things like that get stuck in your brain?" Well, the same reason that I tell my uh, my six year old son, I, I was reading one day, and he said, "What are you reading about?" And I said, "Plato." And he said, I don't know what you're reading about. It's just this squishy stuff that comes out of an egg, and you play with it, and you roll it on the newspaper, and it makes an imprint. So he didn't yeah. know what I was talking about either. Yeah, yeah, but that was his world. That's his world. That's what Plato is to him. Okay, so let's look at this uh, this fiscal update from your perspective. It's We've had a few days to try to digest what came our way. Uh, how are you assessing what, what it's all about? It's funny you use the word digest. Uh, because that's exactly what I've been trying to do to it and not have to run and get the Pepto-Bismol. Um, you know, it's funny. Ever since I appeared on your show, I've received um, uh, quite a few emails, which I, uh, is wonderful. People are engaged and they want to they chat. But they've, they've kind of said to me that I'm a little bit glass half empty um, and they'd like a little bit more glass half full conversation. And I think they're annoyed when I tell them, then you better go to somewhere that's glass half full in terms of their economic um, forecast. Because I wasn't, we talked last week about what to expect. And I mean, nothing blew me away as per se. That, uh, I, I, I expected nothing. And when you set the bar low, the government tends to get over it or at least smash into it. And in general terms, I think that's what they did. Yeah, I, I I read it uh, as much of it as, as I could, uh, staying with the metaphor stomach, and um, then I, I just stopped because I had a sense I knew what was coming, and what was coming was not going to be particularly good and not not doable and uh, really is agenda driven. Did did I miss something? Should I have continued to read? No, no. As, ma as a matter of fact, that's where you should have uh, smartly stopped reading because that's where it, the, that's where the story gets sad. 
Um, so I took the uh, I, I I took it upon myself to go to StatsCan and see what their they did a re- report which just came out December second, so that was timely. Um, and I looked at the numbers for the third quarter, and it's interesting because believe it or not, if you go down the board between ro- real gross domestic product and things like household spending and exports and even disposable income. Um, you can kind of do the Wizard of Oz thing and say, well, they're all up uh, compared to the third quarter and even the second quarter. So, so you say that's, that's wonderful. Uh, the numbers are up. But again, that's, you know, that's really um, looking at the picture uh, in, in uh, absolute terms. In relative terms, each of those numbers, consumption, investment, exports, real GDP, they're all still very, very much down from where they were a year ago, ridiculously down from where they were two years ago. And I think that the government, in a sense, tried to use the increases in each of these macro variables um, to say, look over here, don't look over here. It's an old, you know, it's the old prestidigitation magic trick. So, you know, look at real real gross domestic product, right? Our, our economy grew by almost 8% compared to the previous quarter. Um, nominal terms, 11%, although nominal terms means nothing. Um, and spending was up almost double digits, and disposable income was up 3%. So they go, okay, look over here at your macro stats and your macro variables. We're doing better. We're doing much better than we were. But I think, and not to ramble on as I tend to with you, you got to remember where you're, where are you better from? I mean, you're looking, saying, you're comparing to the second quarter of this year, which was historically, historically bad. So to say you're doing better than historically bad, well, I guess if you want to take pride in that, you can. Uh, and then number two, which you may want to talk about next, I think that they used this magic act to say, look over here, not over here. Because I think if you actually look and, and take the, the budget piece by piece uh, with a fine-tooth comb, I think there was, some, um, there was some sleight of hand. And I don't know if you want to delve into that. Oh, absolutely. Yes, let's do that. Let's, um, let's shine the light. Well, okay, so shine the light. So you look at the macro variables and the government, as they tend to do when these things go up at all, um, they pat themselves on the back and they say, all right, so, you know, we're doing much, much better. And again, they did. I have to say, if you, if you forced me into a corner, we did do better in the third quarter than the second quarter. Well, okay, congratulations. So how do we reward Canada and the Canadian public for doing that? What do we do? Well, the first thing that we do is we significantly, again, increase the Canada emergency wage subsidy. So now the maximum wage subsidy for active employees goes from 75% uh, from 65%. The base subsidy remained at 40%, but top-up goes up to from 25% to 35%. And if you're really in, as you would say in Yiddish, which means in big trouble, um, if your revenue declines by 70% or more, then you might even be eligible for a 75% wage subsidy. So you're spending much more than you're taking in. You're spending way more than would be justified by those increases in the macro numbers. What do you also do? Well, you say to people, we're going to give you a little bit more if you have children. And no one dislikes this idea. $300 per child under the age of six, if your family net income is less than or equal to 120000 
$150 per child if your net income is more than 120000 And everybody says, well, again, that's nice. That's a nice thing for the government to do. Well, sure. And then they come in and they tax Amazon, Netflix, Crave, and Disney Plus by putting on something called a, a corporation providing digital services tax. So now you're stuck at home. You have nowhere to go and nothing to do but watch TV. So we're going to tax that. So that's very much appreciated. And then finally, they tax what they called unproductive use of Canadian housing by foreign non-resident owners. So you know what that means. It means that if you're a non-Canadian and you buy a condominium and you don't sell it and you leave it open, they're going to tax it, which I have to say leaves me lacking. And it's because of perspective. I love the way in Canada we call things, we use words like capital flight. We find these things to be That's sad. Right. When in other countries, capital flight is called foreign investment, and we dine out on them. So I don't exactly know what the government was trying to do here. I really, again, I really think the government was trying to say, check out these numbers while we sneak these numbers through. And that just, you know, Roy, that just leaves me as an economist, as a taxpayer, just it leaves me lacking. What I think they're doing is they're saying, read this, don't read that, read this, and we want you to remember it until sometime mid-March, at which time you'll be voting in the next federal election. That's exactly what they're doing. I mean, you can, you can never, ever, ever remove anything from political from the time frame, from the not-in-my-backyard uh, phenomenon, and when is the next election coming? So... You know, again, I watched it, and I do. I'm The people that are going to email me and call me negative, it's okay. I guess maybe I've, I've earned it. But if you really want to jump up and down at, the, at, these, at these indicators and say, well, across the board, they're all almost up, again, you can do that. But, you know, it's, it's like saying um, we, were, we were at the bottom, bottom, bottom of a barrel, and we took a half a step up. You know, again, if you want to jump up and down and say that we're doing much better, you can. I just, uh, I'm not fooled. Dr. Cam, I can tell you this. The emails that I get about you are invariably positive. All of them. I haven't seen one negative email about you. And I checked on Twitter. You're starting to make an impression there as well. You've only been, this is the third time you're on with us. Um, Professor Cam, I just want to read you an email that I received about you in the last couple of seconds. It's from Jeff. It says, your Ryerson guest is wonderful. First Ontario chap, I've not heard blowing smoke. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, thank him very much, and uh, I'm honored and uh, actually kind of humbled. I mean, I, I don't know what, what to say. I, I approach, to be honest with you, I, I love coming on your show, and I try to do what I do for the good listenership of your station. It, what I try to do in front of a lecture hall, which is explain that I, you know, there are no miracles, there are no crystal balls, but there are certain causalities that if you do this, that will happen. And I just try to explain those things. And, and as you say, one of my professors, Abby Cohen, the best teacher I ever had, once said to me, if you can't explain it to someone in high school, then you can't explain it. So I'm just, like I say, I, I'm, I, there's nothing I'm trying to do here that's... Uh, um, ridiculously difficult. I'm just trying to look at a bunch of convoluted numbers and um, pick out what is relevant. And and more important uh, to your to the to the person who wrote in is I never try to teach people what to think. I really try to show people 
how to think. And at the end of the day, for your listeners and even for you, Roy, you may agree with me, you may disagree with me. That's absolutely fine. I just want people to come at the economy with kind of um, a good toolkit of how to approach the issues. Well, that's great because most of us see economics as a mystery. We we know we understand fundamentally our own economics. It's not that hard to understand what we've done to ourselves. But uh, the, the big picture is a little more um, mysterious, and, and you're able to do that. I, I have always approached talk radio this way. I, I have the greatest respect for each listener, whether they agree with me or not, whether they like me or not. The fact that they turn in, a person turns in, gives you of his or her time, uh, once, twice on a regular basis, whatever it is, I'm, I'm grateful. And my responsibility is to the listener and just to be honest with the listener. And that's, that's just what we do. But let me ask you this. When you say, you say the same thing to us here on the program, five provinces, 11 markets, some of the biggest cities in the country. Um, what do you, how when you speak to a, a younger demographic, when you speak to a lecture hall, when you still could, or virtually now, how does the generation uh, in their 20s, I'm assuming, late teens, early 20s, how are they assessing what's going on? How do they receive your message? Well, what they do, of course, is they look, for, they look to you. I mean, I, I always tell my students, I'm, I'm teaching an online class right now, as y'all are, of 1,400 students. Uh, so that's a pretty good sample size. And what they look for um, from their professors often in courses like economics, are perspective. And so they really want kind of a relative story, meaning tell me where we are today, but more importantly, tell me where we were yesterday. Tell me, tell me if today we're doing better or worse and a reason why. And then what do you think will happen tomorrow? But I always caution them that what I think will happen tomorrow is as good as what they think will happen tomorrow. So I find what's going on with the younger generation is, and, and I'm impressed with them, by the way, I love my students. I love the, the, how inquisitive they are and how engaged they are. What they want really is a sense of perspective, not just not so much how do I make sense of all this, but how do I make sense of all this in a, in a historical perspective and in a, in a even a sociological perspective. They know that the economy is doing very, very poorly because they listen to you, they listen to other outlets, and, and they know that the economy is on a downslide. Um, they want to know that they shouldn't panic. They want to know what they can do to, in, to make the future generations of policymakers better than the present ones there are today. And they, and they want to know, again, you know, as if, as if time doesn't stop, where were we 10 years ago, 20 years ago? They, they know things. Like when we show them numbers, they see like in 1991 when interest rates went to 20% and people walked away from their homes. They know these stories from their moms and dads. So they want to know, are we there again? Is it that bad? Is it worse? And how do I compare my economic life today to where my parents were, my grandparents were, and maybe my children will be? What we need to do, uh, Professor Cam, and we're just out of time here, but what we need to do next time is maybe take a few phone calls for you. Are you up for that? I would love that. Okay. So it's Eric Cam at Ryerson.ca. I'm just going to tell everybody how to reach you. That's E-R-I-C and then K-A-M, E-R-I-C-K-A-M at Ryerson.ca. Stand by for the onslaught.
Oh, no, and they can also, as my daughter would like to say, they can hit me up on Twitter at Dr. Eric Cam, one word. Sam Cooper is, as you know, if you listen to this program, I'm a huge fan, a huge fan of Sam's, national online journalist, investigative. I think sometimes I embarrass him by the how I describe him. Do I embarrass you, Sam? Not at all, Roy. Uh, I, I appreciate well-read uh, listeners and interviewers, and uh, you're at the top of the list uh, on, on with those qualifications. Well, thank you. I, I, really, I, I've been in this business a long time. And the people who I just automatically just feel, boy, I have to read or watch whatever they're doing are few. And you're certainly right at the top of that list. So here we are with, um, and I read this story very carefully. There's so many moving parts, and it comes at you from all 32 compass points. And it has to do with, and the headline of your story is, the lead of your story is, Chinese vaccine company executives worked in program now targeted by Western intelligence agencies, globalnews.ca. So this is the CanSino company, and the agreement that was signed by Mr. Trudeau, I think in May, and then abrogated uh, very abruptly by China in August. Can you just give us the background, Sam, before we get into what you wrote about? Sure, you're right. There's a lot of moving parts in the story. Uh, the, the simple piece here is that Canada, if you want to put it this way, uh, assigned a lot of its intellectual capacity and industrial capacity in this chase for a COVID vaccine to the country of China. Uh, right off the bat, uh, there are a number of people that, that would ask, why would you do that? And this is where the story gets complex. The deal here was Canada is a, a leader in in science technology has been for years and uh, we assigned the rights to uh, one of these cell lines from which labs can test and grow vaccines this was our proprietary technology and we assigned it to this company CanSino their end of the deal was they would come up with the vaccine ship it back to Canada where our national research council now has capacity in Montreal to produce a vaccine. And before that, it was going to go out to Dalhousie University, where our top scientists were going to test it and, and make sure it was uh, up to snuff with the Pfizer's and the Moderna's. And then hopefully, if everything went well, Canadians would be front of the line for a vaccine produced in Canada, which is the end goal that all all developed nations that, that can do this right now are, are, are chasing that goal because, as we know, it, it really is a, a life or death question for some. So the deal fell apart, and there was no explanation from, uh, from Canadian officials really why. Uh, they, they had to come out and say that China did not ship the vaccine as promised. So uh, right at that point is when I, I had to start to dig. I, the deal already was a bit smelly to me based on some things I knew. And uh, the experts, be they in uh, science or intelligence, uh, law enforcement said, this has happened before. It looks like right at the top in China, they blocked the shipment of the vaccine. Either they're trying to punish Canada in some way. There are lots of reasons because we're not uh, in good relations now. Or potentially they just didn't want Canada to, to take part in the development, there could be a deeper reason. Maybe they wanted China's military to hog the vaccine. And when I dug deeper, that all of those options look like uh, they, they could have a little bit of the piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, you write several former Canadian Security Intelligence Service officials, CSIS, 
interviewed by Global News, that would be you, said that Ken Sino's Canadian-educated scientists were likely seen as potential assets by the Chinese Communist Party Information Collective Net- Collection Networks. And and then you uh, you talk about, um, uh, what is this organization, Sam? This um, uh, The Chinese Canadian uh, Biopharma Technical yeah, uh, and the Association thousand, in Toronto. And the Thousand Talents Plan. So as I'm reading this, I'm starting to hear you talk about China, Huawei, and uh, our, our famous technology firm that was that disappeared off the map very quickly, Nortel. Are the, I don't want to confuse people, so I'll back off that Nortel thing for a second and just ask you to tell us what's going on with uh, with China's interest in our in our uh, scientists, our researchers, and and their what are they? They're patriating these these Canadians, or trying to, or at least getting their information. Right. Well, you, your instinct is right, I believe, with the with the Huawei Nortel comparison at a high level. And uh, so let's break it down to an, into a couple of pieces. First of all, CanSino, uh, the company was founded in China in 2009 by some uh, elite uh, Chinese Canadian Chinese born researchers who studied uh, at university in Canada and rose to the top of the biopharma industry in North American or Western companies. And uh, they were attracted back to China in China's talent recruiting programs. And first, let me say that uh, there, there's no allegation that uh, the Kensino scientists uh, were involved in any nefarious activity. But what is shown here is they are part of the Thousand Talents Plan. This is a, a broad Chinese Communist Party recruiting plan in which the goal is to reach out across the world to Western-trained, the top scientists, and attract them either to share their research with China or to come back to China. Now, especially if you're Chinese-born, Mandarin-speaking, our intelligence experts told us uh, it's widely known, and it has been for years. Those scientists that have risen to the top and they speak Mandarin, they will be approached wherever they're working, be it Terrace uh, Canada, Toronto, New York City. If they're in the West and they're on the top of their game, they will be approached by uh, people connected to consulates, Chinese consulates in those countries, with the pitch that uh, really uh, it's time for you to come home and bring your knowledge to the motherland. Now, uh, let's, let's be clear. All top countries have talent recruiting, but more and more in the past two years, Western intelligence, including CSIS, has been targeting this Thousand Talents plan because they allege there are serious cases of espionage, and it's broader than the Thousand Talents plan. Uh, it, it really is China's strategy is to repatriate information. If you are Chinese-born, even if you're ethnic Chinese, the unfortunate situation is China... They will use their networks, their espionage networks, their influence networks to try to approach you, try to leverage you, or just try to encourage you to, to win the game for China, is how the uh, intelligence experts describe it to us. And Ken Sino's top executives are part of this Thousand Talents plan. Yeah. Uh, the question that I kept asking myself after August, when the thing fell apart, or I didn't fall apart in August. That's probably part of the plan from the very beginning. But the question I asked myself, Sam, was why did we ever sign on? We've had these experiences with China in the past. When I say we, I mean Canada. And you write in your in your story 
Uh, Chinese vaccine company executives worked in program now targeted by Western intelligence agencies on globalnews.ca. You're right. One of the Canadian security con- consultants said the agency responsible for the CanSino collaboration, the National Research Council, should have seen red flags surrounding a CanSino partnership. So if we're talking about the National Research Council, they're pretty powerful, got lots of money. Does the, uh, does the National Research Council have security protocols and responsibilities? Uh, and if they are, are they closing at least one eye to these protocols when this kind of deal goes through? We're trying to get that exact answer about why uh, the, the NRC would, would engage in a deal that would appear to have some risk. And look, uh, CSIS will not come out and say they directly warned Canada's government or the NRC about this deal and CanSino. Uh, they will say, broadly speaking, they have warned, been warning uh, Can- Canadian agencies, be they the Army, uh, the, the Space Agency of Canada, NRC, just university researchers everywhere are being approached en masse and told, uh, you need to watch out for China's efforts under these recruiting plans because their, their top-level goal is to take civilian research from around the world and feed it into the Chinese Communist Party's military, the PLA. Those warnings are out there. Was, was there a specific warning on CanSino? Did NRC ignore a warning? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you uh, from the people I talked to, the, as they put it, the right hand in Canada's government doesn't know what the left hand's doing. There's all kinds of different agencies, and uh, really the experts say at the top level there needs to be an all-of-government approach where uh, the government, uh, the top bureaucrats, are listening to national security vetting because no one's fooled anymore. The, the, the veil is off. China is playing a game and Canada is playing, uh, you know, 50 years behind in terms of being hoodwinked uh, about what China's intentions are. Did China get what it wanted out of this CanSino uh, deal? Did, did we get burned? We, uh, it, there's a pretty clear answer there. We only have to listen to China's uh, national uh, state media. They, they reported in November that since June, uh, the Chinese military has been uh, getting, uh, many personnel have been getting CanSino vaccine doses, and no one has got infected. They've been operating uh, in pandemic-affected zones, according to China, and uh, the vaccine's working for them. So uh, China appears to have done well. Let me just add that there's a little twist in this. Uh, The vaccine is based on uh, a common cold, uh, and so apparently it doesn't work very well for older segments of the population because they would have been exposed to the cold. But it appears to work very well for military-aged people in China. If we take China at its word, Canada has nothing. Uh, We spent tens of millions uh, getting that NRC uh, industrial capacity up in Montreal. We uh, had our best scientists ready to take uh, part in testing and, and delivering this vaccine, hopefully the Canadians first in the world. None of that has happened. So we've spent and we've lost. We got burned. That's it. That's the bottom line. You're such an amazing reporter, uh, journalist. Okay, so here's the other story. RCMP unit commander warned BC government that organized crime would run casinos with impunity. And you're right, Inspector Wayne Holland, who took control of the anti-illegal gaming unit in 2007, told a public inquiry into money laundering on Wednesday that he expected BC's government to agree with the RCMP's plan to double his unit size to 24 officers. 
24 officers to take on what they were taking on. They shot 124. He told the Cullen Commission that the unit had been chronically understaffed, and in late 2008, he presented a threat assessment that showed organized crime, money laundering, and loan sharking were deeply embedded in B.C.'s Lottery Corporation casinos. And then he also write, the threat report t- obtained by Global News in a Freedom of Information request also warned of extreme crimes and violence, including murders, loan-sharking extortion, leading to kidnapping of children, human trafficking, and prostitution stemming from B.C. government casinos. It sounds impossible. It sounds impossible, and let's just uh, let's give your listeners the breakdown on that illegal gaming unit. Now we've heard from two commanders, uh, the most recent one this week, saying they they advocated to grow the size of that unit. It was con- chronically understaffed. Uh, both commanders wanted to grow the unit, and uh, something strange was going on. It appeared that they were sort of being told, go after illegal casinos, go after, you know, bullfighting, but don't go into government casinos. They were saying, no, we have to go into government casinos. Organized crime is absolutely embedded in there. And... Instead of growing the unit and going into BC Lottery Casinos, the, the, the unit was disbanded in 2009 after uh, an incredible threat assessment report was levied, uh, handed to BC's government late 2008. So that's the big question, why? And uh, we did hear, hear from Inspector Wayne Holland this week. He says he was stunned at the decision. He felt that that set back BC uh, 10 years at least. Organized crime was already strong in BC casinos, and it would only get stronger. And was he ever right? But let's jump back to that threat assessment report, because I, I spent years trying to get my hands on this report. It, it, I, cannot, I can't stress enough how stunning the details of it are, uh, enraging, when, when you consider that uh, I can tell you the fentanyl, the heroin kingpins of North America had been embedded in BC casinos for years. They were only getting stronger, and this report pointed to the details of murders happening just outside the gate of a Richmond casino, really. Uh, children thrown in the trunk of a car be- because a-, a loan shark working for drug traffickers wanted to enforce a gambling debt against a illegal casino uh, owner. Prostitution, uh, human trafficking from Asia, women shipped over uh, with gambling debts and made to work them off in, uh, in body houses of Vancouver. I could go on and on. Uh, there's absolutely murder, kidnapping, violence, and it appears, I would say not more than appears, the evidence now is BC's government for some reason turned a blind eye. Was it simply uh, because they understood that revenue coming in was growing, growing, growing over a billion dollars per year after 2010? That could be one reason. Could there be that more uh, traditional form of direct corruption, politicians on the take? Roy, um, we're, starting to, we're starting to get into that zone where it looks like that. I can't say it yet, uh, but this report, there's one more point that jumped out of me in the threat assessment. It said that a B.C. government official allowed an Asian organized crime figure to buy a stake in, the, in a B.C. casino. We don't know which one. But if you think about it, let me break down the Vancouver model very quickly. Money from China, drug money, is coming in underground. It's being laundered through casinos. doesn't matter if the gambler loses. He's taking drug cash from a loan shark and paying it back in China. The loan shark, the drug traffickers win. Now it appears that Asian organized crime owns a piece of the casino. They're taking both sides. 
and a government employee allowed this to happen. You can't imagine more uh, incredible corruption, and yet BC's government uh, disbanded the unit after receiving that report. It's unbelievable. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We talk to Dan every weekend or each weekend, whichever is correct in the long anglais. And uh, I tweeted out the other day that to lock down businesses, and I understand the COVID issue, I get it, I get it. But to lock down small businesses at this time of year, to me, is like wandering onto the battlefield after the fight and bayoneting the wounded. How are you, Mr. Kelly? (laughs) Well, with that intro, I don't know. It's been a tough week, I gotta tell yeah. you. Some good news, uh, but, uh, but also some, some tough news as, uh, as of course more, more and more provinces start to impose business restrictions. Yeah. Let's talk, or, or you tell us, please, how significantly important the month of December is. Not only, um, this year it's survival, but how significantly important is the month of December generally to small and medium-sized businesses as far as, you know, making it a profitable year is concerned? Yeah, look, I mean, most most businesses have completely discounted the fact of uh, or the, the possibility of earning any kind of profit. But uh, but in terms of just their survival, it is absolutely critical. Many many businesses, especially in retail, in the hospitality sector, and in the service sector, tell us that that often up to forty percent of their sales happen in the six weeks leading up to Christmas. And in tons of parts of Canada, there are now restrictions that are limiting the number of people that businesses can serve. Can serve. And, of course, in Manitoba and in parts of Ontario, uh, small retailers in particular, at their absolute business, busiest, most critical season, are now entirely closed to in-store sales. And, and you know, that's why people go to small businesses. They go inside because they need some advice. If they were just looking for commodities, they go to Walmart or order it on Amazon, we are really worried. I, I, I'm absolutely, as I told the premier and, and mayor and, and any other politician and medical officer that will listen to me, there will be thousands and thousands of businesses that will not make it as a result of the incredibly tight restrictions in Toronto, Peel, and in Manitoba. Dan, uh, everybody, I'm sure, is aware that in the province of Ontario, large retailers delivered an open letter to Premier Ford and to Minister of Health Christine Elliott, and they were calling on the provincial government to rescind its lockdown on retail stores. The Premier refused. Um, That has to be a gesture that, that the small business community appreciates, but to me, it's much bigger than that. It really is ringing the alarm bell very very loudly. So I ask myself, and I know you've done this, and I know you've talked to the Premier and, and, and to the powers that be. I want to talk to you about that as well. But I'm thinking about the small business person who would maybe have, what, three, four clients in, customers in, when it's busy, and really does a heck of a job keeping the premises as disinfected, as clean as possible. Um, putting all of that together, I just can't make and I know I'm going to get criticized for this, but I don't understand why they can't leave the small business sector alone, make sure they clean everything, and I'm sure they would, the vast majority of them, 
and let them survive. Because I don't want to be talking to you on the 27th of December and have you say, or the 7th of January or whatever it is, and have you say, well, here's the number that's gone under. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is, you know, we are allowing people in Toronto and Peel to go to the big box store, to stand in line at Walmart or outside of Home Depot or, or be in the Costco with uh, 200 other people breathing over their shoulder. That we're saying is okay. You can buy the book, the flower arrangements with your groceries when you're there, but you're not allowed to go into the 1,000 or 2,000 square foot business as the only customer. And that's, you know, on that letter from the large retailers, they had proposed uh, making all retailers, uh, confining them all to 25% of their former capacity, not to allow them to open wide. And I get that. But, you know, I think a strong argument could be made that if we're, if the goal is to try to reduce COVID spread, allowing customers to, to, to head to the thousands and thousands of small stores that are quiet, only serving a handful of customers a day, would be a better policy than allowing them to all head to the same handful of big box stores and stand in line. So at first I was arguing this on the fairness perspective of how fair it was or unfair it was for small guys of having their large counterparts open while they are closed. Increasingly, though, boy, we're arguing this on the health and safety, uh, from a health and safety perspective, because the policy doesn't make any sense. And when that starts to happen, you have more and more business owners starting to be motivated to take action themselves. Because, you know, during the spring lockdowns, people caught it. This was something brand new. Didn't know what the heck was going on. And people understood that there had to be tight measures taken at that stage. And retailers today are telling us that they understand that tight measures need to be maintained even at this stage. We're asking them to replace the, the, the nonsensical policy that the government has used with something that would seem to make a lot more sense and allow small firms to earn a trickle of income along the way. Yeah. When it, I don't know how often this question is asked. I haven't asked you yet. When is it going to be too late? How do you know? When do we know? What's is there a drop dead date? It's different for every business, but uh, but I can tell you for the retail sector, missing out on these weeks right now will absolutely lead to thousands and thousands of bankruptcies starting in the spring of next year. Businesses have been holding out to hope that things are going to that there'll be a brighter day. And that brighter day just keeps getting uh, farther, further and further away. The challenge for many of our members, though, of course, is that they are losing money every day. They're running out of days to do that. If they miss out on this, think about these guys. In the lead-up to Christmas, they stopped out with every specialty item they possibly could, yeah, hoping for, for sure. the Christmas season. They'll be sitting on all of that expensive inventory, and they'll be lucky to sell it at fire sale prices when they, if they are able to reopen in the spring. Because customers are not going to want the, the diamond necklace or the stack of books or or the kids' toys in January and February and March. Yeah. And one thing we need to keep in mind, and I have to wrap this up, Dan, and I appreciate you coming on to start the show because this is so critically important. And here's another reason why it's critically important, that the small business sector employs, you know, in good times, in normal times, about 8 million-plus Canadians. That's a big number. Am I, I'm, I'm right about that, right? You're absolutely right. And, you know, what, what worries me is we're moving back into rounds of layoffs. There were some job numbers just out that, that the employment actually went up, which was good news. But I can tell you what's happening right now as a result of these lockdowns. 
the restaurant owner, the gym owner that is now closed again, the retail shop that had hired some extra people, they are now laying those people off again because they just don't need them. And we're not going to know that in terms of the aggregate until early next year. But gosh, that's going to—that's—it's painful not just for the business owner, but for the employees and and for all of us as Canadians as we see the our neighborhoods bleed of these small independent businesses that that really do add such character and value to our community. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.